Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to have you with me uh, this Friday evening. And if you are tuning in by way of podcast, I welcome you. Uh, once again, it is always an honor that you are taking time out, out from your busy schedule uh, to journey uh, with this radio program. And today I am flying solo. Debbie Rizals was unable to join me this evening, and uh, nor is Deacon Ray. So uh, welcome. Uh, this Sunday, uh, we are going to hear from the Gospel of John. If you have been listening uh, over the past five, six weeks, you know that uh, once Christ entered Jerusalem, we have been tracing his words as they have been written down by Matthew. And we've had some great conversation, I've thought, on some of these uh, wonderful exchanges between Christ and, and the Pharisees and the many lessons to be had. Now, I say wonderful, but, you know, the Pharisees were, were, were plotting and conniving, but uh, wonderful to the extent that uh, Christ is constantly revealing truth. Uh, and it is in those exchanges that Christ comes to us with some very strong truths uh, for us. Now, this Sunday, we commemorate the faithfully departed. And on Saturday, what would we have? All Saints Day. So the Feast of All Saints Day and the commemoration of all the faithful departed have something in common. And for this reason, have been placed one after the other. You know, both celebrations speak to us of what's beyond. I mean, if we didn't believe in a life after death, it would not be worth it to celebrate the Feast of the Saints, uh, and even less, you know, to visit the cemeteries and remember the loved ones who have gone before us. Uh, so today we are made to remember. And, and I do want to reflect upon this a little bit before we get into the Gospel of John. Uh, this past week, we have actually taken up the theme already of memory. And what we have seen is that memory in of itself is just not a mere psychological retrieval of data, okay? It's just not a principle to serve and fancy people with, with what we know in a game like Trivial Pursuit or Jeopardy. No, it's much, much more. As St. Augustine reminds us, it is the principal faculty of our soul, which means it is the faculty that tells us who we are. It routes our whole identity so we remember those who have gone before us so as to better appreciate who we are and where we are going, okay? This is so important, just not to what we were talking about earlier this week, but most especially, my dear friends, uh, for what this feast day is all about, why we commemorate. You know, memory in so many ways uh, helps us gather in. Uh, what is important versus what is not important. As I'm talking about this right now, I cannot help but think of my father. My father died when I was a sophomore in high school. I was 16 years old. And last year, I had the opportunity to go back to his cemetery 
and I have not been there in a long time, uh, maybe 15 years. I, it had just been that long. I just didn't have the opportunity. I no longer lived in the area where I grew, uh, where I grew up. So I'm reflecting upon this now because when I went to that cemetery, I was deeply moved by two realities. A, that, yeah, he's no longer here, and life is short. <laughs> life is short. And I was, as I was remembering who he was and all of the sacrifices that he made for our family. Again, I'm one of 11 kids, so he made a lot of sacrifices. He thought of himself last a lot to make it work. And in growing up, were there hard times? There were a lot of hard times. Did my dad fall? Sure he did. But, but he overcame his faults because of his struggle and grace. And that's what's inspiring. I left that cemetery inspired to be a better whole craft, to, to be a, a better version of who Joe is called to be. And when I was reflecting back, there were some dark days in our family. If you are a faithful listener, you're probably aware of this because I've, I've shared many stories. There were some tough times, very tough times. And to go back is to appreciate what God has done for you. You know, John Paul II, in his first trip back to Vadovice, his homeland in Poland, after he was installed as Supreme Pontiff, huh? he broke down in tears. And he says, it is in coming back that I have come to understand that my first seminary was a domestic seminary. And he was talking about this as he was looking at the wall with a huge picture of his father praying before the crucifix there with World War II on the horizon. He was deeply moved, and he also talked about how in going back, God wanted him to see how he provided for him. And I have to tell you something, my dear friends. <laughs> to go back to my father's grave, to remember the way things were, and how God in his providential care provided for me, for my siblings, and consequently... <laughs> In my journey and my vocation and, and for my wife and my kids, I was deeply, deeply moved. And yeah, the point to be had here is that it made me want to be a better person. It made me want to wake up more with greater conviction, greater drive to live a purpose-driven life, huh? I would correlate this experience with maybe going on a pilgrimage, huh? You know, you go from from California to Lourdes or from maybe New York to Rome, you go on a pilgrimage and you seek transformation, you seek change, you, you reflect about life in general. Well, this is another kind of pilgrimage, a pilgrimage where geography is involved, but it's unique to the context of time. Yes, if we spend time in Rome or if we spend time in Lourdes on a pilgrimage, we would be made to think more critically about life. Yes, but we do that too when we go to those places in our lives and we are made to see how God has worked in our life. And to some extent, maybe it's a little more powerful because it's, it hits home a little stronger. It's more concrete for us. Yeah, like a pilgrimage, which afterwards should lead to what? But conversion. So this 
Sunday is about looking back, just not for the sake of looking back, but looking back as a means to an end. And that end would be a drive to love God even more. Hmm. So this day also has us drawing back and probably being humbled by the reality of death. And so everything in this day invites us to the wise reflection from the psalmist, huh? Teach us to count our days that we may gain wisdom of heart. And as one author said, (laughs) to live like tree leaves in autumn. Why? The tree in spring blooms again, but with other leaves. The world will continue after us, but with other inhabitants. Leaves don't have a second life, (laughs) okay? They disintegrate where they fall. Does this happen to us? No, no. And that's where the analogy ends, right? Because Jesus promised us, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Remember the words from Paul, without the resurrection, our whole faith is in vain. Why? Because the resurrection of Jesus is a historical foundation so essential to Christianity that without it, the entire structure of faith collapses in its ruins. And so in light of that great prayer that comes to us from the psalmist, teach us to count our days. Yes, we should be humbled. We should be humbled to want to increase, not in, in intellectual knowledge per se, but wisdom. Remember how I've talked about this before within the context of the temptation narrative. Okay, Satan had all the knowledge in the world literally speaking. Huh? He had an intellect, but he was not wise. The intellect and knowledge, when it goes to embedded knee, now becomes wisdom. Okay, posture defines wisdom. Hear that again. Posture defines wisdom, not just the, the accumulation of, of knowing facts. No, we have to ask the question, what does it all mean? And when we go on bending knee, that is where we gain access to the inner life of God. And that is where we come to know his will, which of course leads us to our gospel for today. So if you have your uh, Bibles out, if you go to John 6, verses 37 to 40, uh, what do we read here? All that the Father gives me will come to me, and him who comes to me I will not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up at the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. The human will of Jesus, my friends and the divine will of the Father are in such perfect harmony that there is never any tension or competition between them. You know, I believe it was the uh, Council of Constantinople. The Catechism quotes this, and I wanted to go to this paragraph from the Catechism. It's beautiful. It's paragraph 475. When 
the Catechism is talking about Christ's human will, it says this, The Church confesses that Christ possesses two wills and two natural operations, divine and human. They are not opposed to each other, but cooperate in such a way that the Word made flesh willed humanly in obedience to his Father all that he had decided divinely with the Father and the Holy Spirit for our salvation. Christ's human will does not resist or oppose, but rather submits to his divine and almighty will. Okay, why is this important? Well, obedience. Obedience. If we're going to understand God's will, the Catechism just said it. Obedience. Obadire, to listen. The Son was constantly listening to His Father in this perfect harmony. This is why when Paul is talking in Romans 1.5, I think we were talking about this last week actually with Debbie, huh? Romans 1.5 is the obedience of faith. That best translated is the obedience that is faith or the obedience that springs from faith. That is a translation and a rendering of the whole Old Testament vision of faithfulness. And note I said faithfulness, not faith, because in the Hebrew, it's not so much faith, but faithfulness, because the emunah in the Hebrew is firm response or responsive listening. So often today, my friends, when we talk about faith, we just reduce it to believing in the immaterial or believing in what we cannot see. We never put it in its proper context. If we believe in what we cannot see, what does that mean? Well, because we believe in a God who is living, that means we must respond with a life that bears more life. So again, when Paul is writing about the obedience of faith, he's translating the Old Testament vision, and he wants us to see how Christ did it. He wants us to imitate Christ's own obedience. What is that great Christological hymn? He did not deem equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He was obedient unto death, death on a cross, becoming a slave as it were. That hymn gives us profound insight into the inner life of the Trinity. And this is important for you and I, because what we discover in our own sonship is that we must, like Christ, cry, Abba, Father. Romans 8, 15, Abba, Father. That is the zone, okay, if you will, of discovering God's will for us. There are a couple more paragraphs from the Catechism that are very relevant to this discussion. If you were to go into the last section on Christian prayer, what you find in 28, 24, and 28, 25, paragraphs that really highlight what we're talking about here, huh? 28-24, what do we read? In Christ and through his human will, the will of the Father has been perfectly fulfilled once and for all. Jesus said on entering into this world, lo, I have come to do your will, O God. Right? Hebrews 10-7. Only Jesus can say, I always do what is pleasing to him. In the prayer of his agony, he consents totally to his will, not my will, but yours be done. For this reason, Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. And by that, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. 
Okay, again, that kind of goes back to that first paragraph that I read. And it is on the heels of that paragraph, 2824, that we read in 2825, words that are very applicable to us. Quoting uh, John 8:29, although he was a son, Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. Okay, the catechism goes on to reflect how much more reason have we sinful creatures to learn obedience? We who in him have become children of adoption. I mean, what did we just talk about? That passage from Romans 8.15 is a passage of divine sonship, adoption by grace. You did not receive the spirit of slavery in which you fall back into fear, but the spirit of adoption in which you cry, Abba, Father. So it is. We ask our Father to unite our will to his sons in order to fulfill his will, his plan of salvation for the life of the world. We are radically incapable of this, but united with Jesus and with the power of the Holy Spirit, we can surrender our will to him and decide to choose what his son has always chosen, to do what is pleasing to the Father. You know, the relationship between suffering and doing God's will we don't always see it for what it is and how God wants us to see it. I don't know about you, but it is at times in my own journey of faith that when I go through a trial or when I go through certain agonies or suffering, I find it difficult, humanly speaking, to do what I need to do to do the will of the Father. It's just, humanly speaking, difficult. And so this is why the Catechism speaks to this radical incapability without Christ, because it is our suffering. It is all of those agonies in our life that are actually God's mercy to us. God's mercy in the sense that it becomes a means by which we cling to God, and then we open ourselves up to God. If we surrender to God each and every day, all of the pain, all of the suffering, all of the agony, what we discover is God's gift of love. And ultimately, we discover in that his will. Now, there's something else here that is very important for reflection this evening, and that's where this text comes from. John 6, verses 37 to 40. Now, for some of you listeners out there, you very well may know that John 6 is where we find the Eucharistic discourse. And specifically speaking, uh, John 6 opens up with uh, the feeding of the 5,000. And then, of course, Jesus walking on the sea. The Eucharistic discourse, the bread of life discourse, really starts with verse 35. Now, what's important for us is to ask the question, what does today's verse have to do with the bread of life discourse? And many commentaries take this up, and I was spending some time with the Ignatius commentary today, so we will, we will reflect with the Ignatius commentary. In these series of verses, what we find are essentially two separate positions, but positions that I do not think we're supposed to see as opposed to each other as much as in light of each other, Okay. Some think of this discourse, this great bread of life discourse, to be a metaphor as an extensive invitation to faith, 
so that eating the bread of life is seen as a metaphor for believing in Jesus. Others interpret the discourse along more sacramental lines, so that eating the bread of life means partaking in and of the Eucharist. Both of these views are true. Even as Catholics, we say, well, we are more the second, but we have to be careful to not undermine Christ's invitation to faith. Remember what I just said about faith. Both of these views are true and can be correlated with a natural and symmetrical division of the sermon, essentially in two parts. And this is where the commentaries really help us. The first part is chapter 6, verses 35 to 47. And we can call those series of verses an invitation to faith. The first half of the discourse opens with the statement, I am the bread of life. This is followed by a string of invitations to come to Jesus and believe in him for salvation. Now, the metaphorical import, if you will, of our Lord's teaching is so obvious that it stands out in the response of the Jews, right? Who ask him, not why he calls himself bread, but how he can claim to have descended from heaven. This ultimately opens us up to this second category, if you will. If the first was an invitation to faith, this is an invitation to the Eucharist. So now in this second half of the discourse, it likewise opens up with what? I am the bread of life. This is followed by a string of invitations to eat the flesh of Jesus and do what? Drink his blood. Here, the not metaphorical but literal import of our Lord's teaching is so obvious that it too stands out in the response of the Jews who ask how it is possible to consume the flesh, right? In the end, what we are made to see is these two halves of the sermon are not opposed to each other, but work in tandem, since without faith, we can neither be united with Christ nor, and this is very important, my friends, recognize his presence in the Eucharist. If eating is believing, in chapter 6, verses 35 to 47, then believing leads to eating in chapter 6, 48, verses 48 to 58. Now, I talk about this, and I draw this out with the commentaries, because our gospel today is within the context of what? An invitation to faith. An invitation to faith. And that as our faith increases, for us as Christian Catholics, what we come to understand is, ultimately, we are going to be more disposed to see Christ in the Eucharist, to see the poverty of Christ in the Eucharist. You know, it's interesting, as we talk about doing the Father's will, and earlier we were talking about memory. Well, what is the yoke that bonds our memory of those who have gone before us but the Eucharist, right? The liturgy, the Eucharist, is the privileged locus of tradition. And what is tradition? Tradition is the principle that links one generation to another. Tradition is that principle that allows us to have conversation with the past. I was talking earlier about going to my dad's cemetery. 
It was in going to my dad's cemetery that I was made to think about many traditions. And I was having this, this kind of quiet, silent conversation with the past. In the Eucharist, we do this par excellence. Every time we go to Mass, what are we doing? We are having conversation with the past. But I say that the Eucharist is the yoke that bonds our memory of those who've gone before us and what we're about here this evening. Because remember the words of Jesus Christ, do this in remembrance of me. That Latin translated amnesis. Memorialize, make present the past. What better way to commemorate those who've gone before us than to celebrate with the Eucharist, to merry make with the Lamb of God. The beautiful thing about it is, you know, we think so often about those who have gone before us, those who have died, and it's a very difficult time for some of us, especially if any of us have lost loved ones recently. Let me tell you something, my friends. There's no one better thing we can do than meet those who have gone before us to meet them in the Eucharist. Because it is in the Eucharist that we discover the power of the bond that exists in the body of Christ. As he pours himself out, literally speaking, in his body, we, the body of Christ, the people of God, conform ourselves to that body in the Eucharist. And we discover something most beautiful, joy. What did I speak to earlier? The resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. This is a great joy. This is a great joy. Now, the Feast of All Souls in the month of November are sources of consolation for all of us. If our hearts are broken and suffering because of the loss of loved ones, or if we are dealing with unresolved issues, maybe, about goodbyes that were never said, peace that was not made, gratitude that was not expressed, let us not miss the opportunity to reconcile with those who have gone before us in the Eucharist. The Eucharist, again, is that bond of reconciliation, that bond of I belong to you and you belong to me, and allow that bond to strengthen the bonds that maybe were lost or a bond that was non-existent at the, at the end of your life. The Eucharist is the gift that comes to earth from heaven. Let us take our prayers here on earth back to heaven, to God, and let us seek reconciliation in that sacrament that unifies. There is power in the sacrament of the Eucharist. And I would encourage all of you, my listening audience, during the Mass, in your active participation, in your actuoso participatio, to be mindful of what God desires. And He desires forgiveness forgiveness. So if this day is a hard day because of the last days that you may have shared with a loved one, let then this day be a new day, a day of forgiveness, a day of resurrection, a day of new life, and a day of ultimately joy. Let us close with the word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.